When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On my way out, Frank Murphy was talking to Tom Dewey, and as I passed close by, Dewey extended his hand and spoke pleasantly to me. I responded in kind. I had occasion to watch Dewey on several occasions during the evening, and I can in my heart believe that the people of the country will ever take him. He is small and insignificant, and he makes too much of an effort, with his forced smile and jovial manner, to impress himself upon people. Someone told me last night that others, upon seeing him, were totally unimpressed and felt that, merely on the physical side, he did not measure up to the popular conception of a president, although physique ought not to have anything to do with it. Harold Ickes, December 10th, 1939. I am interested to hear of the Dewey visit to Iowa. As a rule, the effect of his meetings wears off very quickly, and if he made no more progress than he did in his Iowa visit, I believe that we are safe there. With regard to large meetings, my campaign has never been based on that appeal. Frankly, I am surprised at the effect of the Dewey meetings, although I don't think it is permanent. As a matter of fact, the people who go to the meetings are not impressed much by Dewey, but they are impressed by the size of the meetings. We are trying to build up the Topeka meeting, but I don't feel confident that I can get anything like the number of people who go to Dewey meetings. Robert Taft, 8th of May, 1940. As the leader of the Republican Party, let me say this. We go into our campaign as into a crusade, revitalized and reunited, and joined by millions who share in our cause. We dedicate ourselves to the principles of American liberty, and we shall fight this campaign on the basis of those principles, not on the basis of hate, jealousy, or personalities. The leaders of the Republican Party, in Congress and in the party organization, have made me that pledge. I have given that pledge to them and I extend it to all who will join this cause. What we need in this country is a new leadership that believes in the destiny of America. I represent here today the forces that will bring that leadership to you. Wendell Wilkie, August 17th, 1940. Sometimes I wonder if we shall ever grow up in our politics and say definite things which mean something, or whether we shall always go on, using generalities to which everyone can subscribe and which mean very little. What is important is how we expect to achieve the above objectives. That is the only thing that matters to the people of the country, and apparently we are going to be very vague about these methods. We can, however, judge parties and people by their records, and Mr. Wilkie's record is something all of us should study in the next few weeks. Eleanor Roosevelt, July 1st, 1940. Divisive politics and a looming crisis unlike anything the world had seen. That was the name of the game in the presidential election of 1940, an election cycle that would see long-standing precedents broken and battles in both of the major political parties to determine their respective future courses for decades to come. Before we explore this unprecedented election, I'd like to welcome you to the presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, 
Jerry Landry. As always, this episode could not have happened without the contributions of numerous folks lending their vocal talents. Reading for Robert Taft and Wendell Wilkie, respectively, were Fry and Bree from the Pontifax podcast. If you haven't checked out Pontifax yet, I highly recommend it. Bree and Fry are going through all the popes, one pope at a time, and examining their lives and papacies, and trying to determine who is the ultimate exemplar of what a pope should be. Informative and entertaining, Pontifax is a regular listen on my podcast list, so I was excited when they agreed to record for me. Thanks so much to both of you. Reading for Eleanor Roosevelt is a dear friend and neighbor, Carrie. When I was in a scramble to find a last-minute reader a few months back, Carrie had volunteered her services. And as I already had a volunteer at that point, I told her that I may call in that offer in the future. When I started thinking about this special series, I knew I would eventually include an Eleanor Roosevelt quote, and I knew that Carrie would be the perfect reader. For your friendship, support, and warmth, as well as the quote, I can't thank you enough, Carrie. Finally, for Harold Dickey's, I turned to some in-house talent in the form of my husband, Alex. Whether it's audio editing, research, vocals, or a kind word of support, Alex has been there from the very beginning to lend his support to presidencies. And for that and his love and partnership in general, I can't thank him enough. Speaking of support, I'd like to thank our patrons, Michelle, Kara, and Scott, as well as our anonymous patron. I greatly appreciate their financial contributions, which cover the monthly hosting fees for the podcast and allow me to start thinking about technology improvements to enable the podcast to move even further ahead in its mission and journey. If you would like to become a patron of the podcast, Simply go to patreon.com forward slash presidencies and sign up. If you're not able to contribute to a monthly donation, but still want to help the podcast, go to presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com, and there you'll find the many ways you can help the podcast. One of the easiest and most impactful ways you can help is by rating and reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or any other podcast platform that has that capability. Also, sharing content from the podcast social media is very helpful. No matter what form your support takes, I thank each and every one of you for your role in our journey through presidential history. Before we dive in, I want to reiterate that the purpose of this special series is to bring people together to appreciate a shared history and to learn and grow together. I always encourage everyone to seek out knowledge, but that journey is not always an easy one. With the advent of the internet and information at your fingertips, it has become easier to obtain information, but the onus is still on the information seeker to discern whether the source is reliable or not. That's where verifying through multiple sources comes in and being aware of any intended or unintended bias on the part of the source. Bias doesn't necessarily mean it isn't true, as we all have a bias, but it does mean you may not be seeing the whole truth when you just engage with one source for your information. That's why I consult with multiple sources for this podcast, to ensure that the information that I provide is as accurate as it can be. Also, I think it's important to note that the divisive nature of politics is nothing new, as we've already seen and will continue to explore in this podcast. Just because it's been done before, though, doesn't mean that you have to do the same. Though we can never be perfect, we can strive to be good and kind and just to one another. Working towards that ideal has always been enough, and it will be again so long as we get on to it. With that said, let's turn our attention to the history of U.S. presidential politics. In 1936, Franklin Delano Roosevelt became only the 12th president to win re-election to a second term of office. For the 11 presidents before him, the second term was typically seen as being their last, 
though there was no law preventing a president from seeking a third term. Indeed, former President Ulysses S. Grant had been put forward at the 1880 Republican National Convention to seek a third term, but had failed to win his party's nomination. Since Grant, however, the unspoken two-term rule had been firmly in place. Roosevelt had easily won re-election in 1936 with 60.8% of the popular vote and 523 out of 531 electoral votes, both of which were an increase over his 1932 electoral victory over then-President Herbert Hoover. His opponent in 1936 was Alf Landon, governor of Kansas. Landon, it should be noted, didn't even carry his home state of Kansas. Rather, as FDR's campaign manager, Postmaster General Jim Farley quipped about the two states that Landon won, quote, As Maine goes, so goes Vermont. Though he handily won re-election, President Roosevelt would face a host of problems, some self-created, in the second term. The administration had already experienced pushback on New Deal legislation from the Supreme Court in 1935 and 1936, with the court striking down laws that had created programs including the National Recovery Administration and the Agricultural Adjustment Administration as unconstitutional. In response to what he saw as the obstruction of the judicial branch, Roosevelt began brainstorming possible remedies a year prior to his second inaugural and settled on a plan of action just before starting his second term. On February 5, 1937, Roosevelt announced that, due to the, quote, heavy burden faced by the Supreme Court, as well as the lower courts of the federal judiciary, he was proposing, quote, a comprehensive overhaul of the federal judiciary, which would include the, quote, appointment of additional judges in all federal courts without exception, where there are incumbent judges of retirement age who do not choose to retire or to resign. Roosevelt's proposed legislation would potentially increase the Supreme Court from nine up to 15 justices. Despite Roosevelt's claims, the proposal was quickly recognized by many for what it was, a plan to pack the court with his supporters. To that point, there had not been a vacancy on the court during his tenure as president, so having up to six additional seats to fill would allow him an opportunity to exert a great influence on the court. Though his proposal would ultimately be defeated in Congress that summer, and the issue would prove to be a moot one, as FDR would have the opportunity to appoint five Supreme Court justices in his second term, the court-packing fight, as it came to be known, would leave a bad taste in many mouths and would be a harbinger of a difficult term ahead for Roosevelt. The economy would go back into a downturn in 1937, leading to increased criticism that the New Deal just didn't work. Organizing drives and sit-down strikes by labor organizations descended into violence. Roosevelt's attempts at promoting New Deal liberals over conservative incumbents in Democratic primaries in 1938 largely failed, and Republicans came back strong in the midterms, winning eight Senate seats and 81 seats in the House, as well as 13 governorships. Indeed, in terms of domestic policy, FDR's only major accomplishment in the second term was the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, legislation, quote, which abolished child labor and set a minimum wage and an official rate of time and a half for overtime. Despite his great victory in 1936, Franklin Roosevelt was increasingly at a political disadvantage the further he got into his second term. Before we turn to the Republican side of the aisle, though, we do need to look at the situation abroad. Since World War I, the United States had largely tried to avoid getting too entangled with foreign affairs. Indeed, despite Democratic control of Congress, 
Even in his first term, Roosevelt found his hands further tied by ever more stringent neutrality acts aimed at keeping the U.S. from getting involved in the increasingly unstable situation in Europe. As noted by historian Robert Dalek of Public Opinion in the latter half of the 1930s, quote, most Americans shared the pacifist desire to stay out of war and wished to guard against the conditions that had pushed the country into World War I. Roosevelt biographer H.W. Brands notes that, quote, unlike the fights over the New Deal, the struggle between the internationalists and the isolationists in the late 1930s blurred party and ideological lines. Valid arguments, historical and contemporary, were adduced on both sides of the debate. Despite public sentiment being against him, Roosevelt realized, quote, that America would eventually need to take a stand against Berlin. It is far beyond the scope of this episode to get too far into the details of the events leading up to World War II, but just know that the situation abroad was growing to be a larger factor in the domestic political debate as the 1940 presidential election drew closer, and that, as of September 1st, 1939, World War II was on the thoughts of a great number of Americans, both in government service and in the general public. So what exactly had the Republicans done after the supposed dismal failure of 1936? Well, as one historian points out, 1936 wasn't quite as abysmal as it might seem at first glance. Lewis Gould, in his examination of the history of the Republican Party, wrote that, quote, the Roosevelt landslide in 1936 demonstrated that even with a very weak candidate and facing a popular president, some 40% of the voters remain loyal to the Republicans. Once the natural balance of American politics reasserted itself and the economic crisis ebbed, the Republicans would move back to a competitive status with their rivals. Certainly, the 1938 midterm election seemed to prove that there was still viability in the party. Gould explains the party struggles of the 1930s as a continuation of ideological battles stemming back to the beginning of the century. Again, from Gould, quote, Following the era of Theodore Roosevelt, a progressive reformist group resided within the Republican Party, albeit with diminishing influence during the 1920s. By the mid-1930s, conservatism prevailed as the dominant policy position of the party on domestic issues. The faith in national power that had been at the heart of Republican thinking during the mid-19th century was now replaced by an increasing commitment to states' rights, smaller government, and a limited executive, all of which became hallmarks of 20th century Republicanism. Meanwhile, post-1936, new leaders were starting to emerge in the Republican Party. Robert A. Taft, the son of the late former president and former Chief Justice William Howard Taft, had won election to the U.S. Senate from Ohio in the 1938 midterms. Taft graduated from Yale University and Harvard Law School and started a law practice in Cincinnati, but he got his first taste of public service during World War I when he became the assistant counsel for the United States Food Administration, then served as counsel for the American Relief Administration. In 1921, he assumed a seat in the Ohio House of Representatives and rose to become Speaker of that body. Prior to his election to the U.S. Senate, Taft also served a short tenure in the Ohio State Senate. By virtue of his experiences growing up in a family heavily involved in politics and his already extensive record of public service, despite his relative newness on the national scene, Taft quickly made a name for himself as, quote, a staunch exponent of anti-New Deal thinking and strong isolationist sentiments, and it was easy for some to see him as a contender for the Republican nomination in 1940. 
Another potential contender hailed from the state of New York. Originally from Owasso, Michigan, Thomas E. Dewey had graduated from the University of Michigan and Columbia Law School and, like Taft, had set out on a legal career, though he soon found himself in public service. Dewey won election as district attorney in New York City in 1937 and quickly made a name for himself, quote, as a racket-busting prosecutor. He challenged incumbent New York Governor Herbert Lehman in the 1938 election and, Though Lehman managed to squeak out a victory, it was by a slim 1% margin. As noted by Gould, quote, Dewey had a very pleasant speaking voice on the radio, and he used the airwaves to appeal to a growing audience as 1940 drew ever closer. Other names being bandied about included a couple of long-shot candidates from the 1936 nomination battle, Senator Charles McNary of Oregon and Senator Arthur Vandenberg of Michigan. Born on a farm in Oregon, McNary had also pursued a career in law. He served for seven years as a deputy district attorney and spent five years as dean of the law department of Willamette University in Salem. In 1913, he became an associate justice of the Oregon Supreme Court. By the time 1940 rolled around, except for a brief period between appointments in 1918, McNary had served in the Senate since May 1917. Vandenberg found his way to the Senate a decade and a half after McNary. Though he had studied law at the University of Michigan for a year, Vandenberg determined that he couldn't remain in school and earn a living simultaneously. Thus, he pursued a career in print media, starting out as a reporter before serving as the editor and publisher of the Grand Rapids Herald from 1906 until he was appointed to the U.S. Senate in 1928. Vandenberg had actually been offered the Republican vice presidential nomination in 1936, but had declined, noting in his diary that, quote, I think I should dive in action in the vice presidency. Both McNary and Vandenberg had risen in the Republican ranks in the Senate, especially as prominent Republicans lost their seats due to the popularity of Roosevelt and New Deal Democrats in FDR's first term. Now that the tide seemed to be turning, it could be that one of these proven party leaders could be just the standard bearer that the Republicans needed to achieve victory in 1940. There was one other candidate, though, who developed a strong base of support with which to oppose the others in the race for the nomination. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Wendell Wilkie was born in Elwood, Indiana, to parents who had been school teachers before they started practicing law. His mother, in fact, was the first woman who had been licensed to practice law by the Indiana State Bar. Wendell went to college at the University of Indiana, where he got his first taste of politics on campus in his fight against the dominant force that fraternities proved to be in campus politics. In 1912, he also participated in the Students' Mock Democratic Convention and supported Woodrow Wilson's nomination. After graduating from law school from the same university in 1913, Wilkie started practicing with his father's law firm. When World War I broke out, Wilkie enlisted, and, though he became a lieutenant, he wouldn't arrive in Europe before the fighting ended. Upon his return stateside, he went back to his legal career and quickly proved to be a success, first at his father's firm in Indiana, then as a lawyer for the Firestone Rubber Company in Akron, Ohio. He also began making a name for himself in the public eye, with Irving Stone noting that Wilkie, quote, was considered a roving gadfly, 
a nonconformist who stubbornly refused to buy an automobile or play golf with his fellow members of the country club. He fought the Ku Klux Klan during its rise in Ohio and championed liberal causes in public debate. At that point, he was involved in the Democratic Party, attending the Democratic National Convention in 1924 in order to support New York Governor Al Smith's candidacy. Then, in 1929, Wilkie proclaimed himself to be, quote, a La Follette liberal. Though that year proved to be such a devastating one to the fortunes of so many, for Wendell Wilkie, 1929 brought an opportunity for a new trajectory in life. In that year, he was asked to become Corporation Counsel for the Commonwealth and Southern Corporation, a public utility company. Accepting the offer from Commonwealth and Southern meant a move to New York, an entree into New York high society. Within a few years, Wilkie became the corporation's president. In 1932, Wilkie had supported FDR's run for president, and his ties to the Democratic Party came into benefit for his company. As noted by Stone, quote, Wendell Wilkie was one of the almost non-existent Democrats on Wall Street. He would be persona grata in Washington. However, as with everything else in his life, Wilkie didn't approach his new position with conventional wisdom. Again, from Stone, Wilkie, quote, staged one of the most heroic performances to be found in industrial history. He cut rates when everyone around him was saying that consumption had to increase before rates could be cut. He devised a bonus plan whereby the consumer could have an extra third of his consumption free if he would use a greater amount each month. He hired 500 salesmen when salesmen were being laid off elsewhere, broadcasting them through his 11 states to sell electrical appliances on easy credit terms. Meanwhile, Wilkie, quote, went on the road himself as a sort of super salesman, instilling confidence in local power companies, pepping up appliance firms, spending as much as 200 days a year in small towns across the face of the nation. Despite the doors that were open due to his association with the party in power, Wilkie found himself souring on the Democratic Party of FDR as time went on. As part of the New Deal, the Tennessee Valley Authority was established as a publicly owned utility company and threatened the business of other privately owned public utilities, including one that was owned by Wilkie's company. Wilkie would not only play hardball against the TVA specifically, but he also launched a public campaign against government ownership of utilities in general. By 1936, Wilkie had turned so much against FDR that, when speaking about the $150 he had contributed to Roosevelt's campaign in 1932, he declared that, quote, I wish I had that money back. Roosevelt may have been re-elected handily, but this did not change Wilkie's mind. And by 1939, he changed his party affiliation to Republican. Meanwhile, Roosevelt's second term found Wilkie increasingly in the public eye, starting with an article about him in Fortune magazine in May 1937, followed by a series of articles Wilkie wrote about his viewpoints in various publications. In January 1938, he faced off in a debate with Assistant Attorney General Robert H. Jackson on the radio program Town Meeting of the Air. After the Republican successes in the midterms, Wilkie increasingly got more good press talking him up as a possible contender for the presidency. He was praised in the Saturday Evening Post as, quote, attractive, articulate, and courageous, while Booth Tarkington wrote of Wilkie as, quote, a man wholly natural in manner, a good, sturdy, able, plain Hoosier. However, as Arthur Crock wrote in February 1939, quote, Wilkie is a long-shot candidate. He'll go down as the darkest horse of the stable for 1940. 1940 will be a little early to bring out a utilities man, but if anyone like that can be put over, I'd watch Wilkie.
One thing that made Wilkie stand out amongst the pack on the Republican side was that he, quote, was the only outright internationalist among them. As described by Gould, quote, to the public, Wilkie seemed a breath of political fresh air, a critic of the New Deal and its successes, who also maintained some balance about what was valuable within the Roosevelt record. As war engulfed Europe, Wilkie's belief in aiding the Allies struck internationalist Republicans as what the leaders of their party should be saying. The question remained, though, whether someone who hadn't even been a Republican for a year could, or indeed should, receive the party's nomination for president. As Republicans approached 1940 without a clear frontrunner, the Democrats approached 1940 not knowing whether the leader of their party would be seeking the nomination to a third term of office. As described by H.W. Brands, quote, Most assumed that Roosevelt would be tempted to try for a third term, but that, like every one of his predecessors who had felt the temptation, he would resist it. Presumably, he would cast his support to a candidate committed to preserving and perhaps extending the New Deal. As early as the spring of 1938, Roosevelt talked over the situation with his close advisor, WPA Administrator Harry Hopkins. Though he didn't rule out another run, Roosevelt noted his own, quote, personal disinclination to run and his wife Eleanor's staunch opposition to the idea. Looking at the other potential candidates in the administration, the president dismissed Secretary of State Cordell Hall as, quote, too old, Secretary of the Interior Harold Ickes as, quote, too crotchety, and Postmaster General and DNC Chair Jim Farley as, quote, the most dangerous of the plausible prospects because of his growing disenchantment with the New Deal and his weak understanding of foreign affairs. Secretary of Agriculture Henry Wallace and Michigan Governor Frank Murphy, though ideologically in line with Roosevelt, didn't have, quote, broad constituencies to which they could appeal. The president did discuss Hopkins as a possibility, though admitting that he had potential issues in his personal life that could hurt his chances, including the fact that he had been divorced and had suffered from health issues. Now, I think it is valid to question just how serious FDR was about the idea of leaving office after his second term. But it is also pertinent to consider that, after over a decade of public service, serving first as governor of New York, then as president, Roosevelt, who had already faced incredible health challenges with his polio and who was turning 58 in 1940, had some legitimate health concerns of his own to take into consideration. According to an account from Secretary of Labor Frances Perkins from a meeting she sat in on between the president and Teamster President Daniel Tobin just after Christmas 1939, Roosevelt told Tobin, when asked about the possibility of a third term, quote, No, Dan, I just can't do it. I'm tired. I really am. I can't be president again. I have to have a rest. I want to go home to Hyde Park. I want to take care of my trees. I want to make the farm pay. I want to write history. No, I just can't do it. Beyond just his words, it seems that Roosevelt did start to set some post-presidency plans into action. He had already arranged for the construction of both the presidential library to house the papers and artifacts related to his tenure of office, as well as, quote, his hilltop dream house, a three-bedroom cottage built to FDR specifications, with extra-wide doors and no thresholds so that his wheelchair could roll easily. In terms of work, he was also making arrangements. The president signed a contract with Collier's Magazine in January 1940, quote, to become a contributing editor at $75,000, a year commencing after he left office in 1941. 
The three-year contract provided Roosevelt with several editorial assistants and would allow him to write 26 articles a year. Had money been an issue, Collier's was prepared to offer more, quote, but FDR considered it inappropriate to earn a greater salary as editor than he had as President of the United States. On December 18, 1939, Vice President John Nance Garner announced his candidacy for the Democratic nomination for president. For Garner of Texas, this wasn't his first time at the presidential rodeo. John Nance Garner, who was known as Cactus Jack, had first assumed his seat in the U.S. House of Representatives in 1903, and in a 30-year career, had worked his way up to first House Minority Leader, then, when Democrats took control of the chamber in 1931, became the 39th Speaker of the House. Being a leading figure in the party, Garner had been in contention for the nomination in 1932, but on the fourth ballot at the convention, a number of delegations that had supported Garner switched to Roosevelt to give him the nomination. And in rather of a convenient coincidence, wink wink, Garner was chosen as the vice presidential nominee. In agreeing to step aside to give FDR the nomination, Garner supposedly quipped to fellow representative and future speaker Sam Rayburn, quote, I'll do anything to see the Democrats win one more national election. Garner, however, had struggled in the vice presidential position. Though still somewhat involved and consulted from time to time, Garner had been held at arm's length, as was the historical tendency for vice presidents. Further, Garner was not a strong proponent of the New Deal, proving at times to be outright critical of some plans. As with many Southern Democrats of the time, Garner trended more conservative than Roosevelt and his administration. In putting his hat into the ring in 1940, as noted by Jules Whitcover, Garner, quote, seemed more motivated by a determination to block a third term than by a desire for the presidency himself. At that point, going into 1940, Garner was 71, and thus, had he been elected, would have set a record unmatched to this date for the oldest person to be inaugurated as president. The primaries, however, would prove that Roosevelt was still highly popular among Democratic voters. Garner's name was only in contention in four states, Wisconsin, Illinois, California, and Oregon. And in all four, Roosevelt won with over 70% of the vote. Even Garner's home state of Texas chose a pro-Roosevelt delegation for the National Convention. Funny enough, Roosevelt was also on the Republican ballot in Pennsylvania and ended up securing nearly 8,300 votes in that primary, 10.5% of the total, which put him higher than Taft, Vandenberg, or Wilkie. Staying on the Democratic side for a minute, though, FDR easily secured enough delegates to win the nomination for a third time if, of course, he wanted it. Leaders in the Democratic Party, however, would continue to wait through the spring as Roosevelt refused to make any public reference to the primaries and instead was increasingly focused on developments in Europe. On the Republican side, Dewey proved to be strong at the polls in April and early May, winning primaries in Wisconsin, Illinois, Nebraska, Pennsylvania, and Maryland in a few weeks' time. On May 14th, however, Taft scored his first primary victory in his home state of Ohio, winning a whopping 99.5% of the vote. McNary, meanwhile, would score a similarly lopsided victory with 95.9% of the vote in his home state of Oregon on May 17th. In the last primary contest of the election season, though, Dewey would come back with a 93.9% vote win in New Jersey on May 21st. Though Dewey had shown strong support at the voting booth, it did seem like another candidate couldn't be counted out. In early May, 
Republican preference polls had only showed Wendell Wilkie at 3%, but six weeks later, he had risen in the polls to 29%. Would this translate to a strong showing at the convention? According to historian Charles Peters, in his book on the 1940 election, quote, Probably the most striking thing about the movement that began to form around Wilkie was the country club complexion of the people who first rallied to his cause. His original supporters were much less Midwestern farmer than Eastern establishment. It didn't hurt that one of his earliest supporters, who was more than willing to use his power and influence to Wilkie's benefit, was Henry Luce, publisher of Time, Life, and Fortune magazines. Indeed, as mentioned previously, it was Fortune that first did a feature on Wilkie in 1937 to get his name into the public consciousness. By April 1940, Luce was willing to devote nearly an entire issue of Fortune to Wilkie. That issue was filled with articles about or expressing support for Wilkie, and the candidate himself was even allowed to get in on the action with an article of his own. Wilkie's We the People article outlined his ideology and his belief that the quote, government, federal or state, must not only be responsible for the destitute and the unemployed, but for the elementary guarantees of public health. This article was then reprinted in the Reader's Digest, the magazine which had the largest circulation in the U.S., and in two weeks of the April issue of Fortune hitting the newsstands, Wilkie had been invited to over 2,000 speaking engagements. To really bring the point home, on May 13, 1940, Life magazine in an 11-page feature on Wilkie would quip that, quote, a vote for Taft is a vote for the Republican Party. A vote for Wilkie is a vote for the best man to lead the country in a crisis. Despite his surging appeal, Wilkie was not a candidate without flaws of his own. Wilkie had married Edith Wilk while Wendell had been serving in the Army during World War I, but they had increasingly grown further apart over the years. Peter cites Wilkie's quote-unquote wandering eye as a serious issue in the marriage. After the move to New York, Wilkie became involved with Arita Van Doren, the editor of the New York Herald Tribune's book review. The two ended up spending weekends together, and Van Doren helped Wilkie to write his articles and speeches. She became a key figure in his political rise. Wilkie's supporters were quickly getting his operation up and running in 1940. Several prominent supporters, including the managing editor of Fortune, took a leave of absence from their day jobs in order to start organizing Wilkie clubs around the nation. Wilkie's growing popularity proved to be a source of annoyance for established Republican politicians, including Robert Taft. In the spring of 1940, Robert and Martha Taft attended a dinner hosted by the owners of the New York Herald Tribune, which Wilkie also attended. During the course of the conversation, Wilkie is reported to have shared, quote, that he would vote for Roosevelt over a Republican who was not for helping Britain and France. Taft, according to Martha, quote, exploded, and the dinner descended into a heated political argument. Wilkie and his supporters played up his homespun image, but his opponents on both sides of the aisle couldn't help but notice the hypocrisy. Secretary of the Interior Ickes referred to Wilkie as, quote, the barefoot boy from Wall Street, while the daughter of Theodore Roosevelt, Alice Roosevelt Longworth, quipped that Wilkie's support, quote, sprang from the grassroots, all right, from the grassroots of a thousand country clubs. As June 24th drew closer, it was still anyone's guess as to how the convention would play out. And the Friday before the convention, a new Gallup poll had come out showing Thomas Dewey in the lead with 47% to Wilkie's 29%. On the first ballot, 
Dewey ended up taking an early lead with 360 votes to Taft's 189 and Wilkie's 105. Though they'd both remain in the mix, Arthur Vandenberg was fourth with 76 votes, and Charles McNary only managed to get 13 votes, putting him next to last out of 13 individuals who received votes on that ballot. Even former President Herbert Hoover had four more votes on the first ballot than McNary, which led some at the convention to wonder whether it was truly new leadership that was needed or whether Hoover might just be the right man for the job this go-round. Hoover had been behind the scenes running an unannounced campaign for the nomination and had an opportunity that other candidates had not. Namely, he had delivered a speech to the convention on the evening of June 25th before the nomination fight began. Though there was much hype before the speech and a media spin thrown out by Hoover supporters afterwards, his speech by and large fell short, as reflected in the first ballot results. Ultimately, the first ballot meant that no one had secured the 501 delegates needed to win the nomination. Further, Dewey had quipped in a news conference just prior to the convention that, quote, he predicted he would have 370 to 420 votes on the first ballot. Though he was in the lead, his result put Dewey short of where he thought he would be. Not a good way to start. With the first ballot done, the question then became just what backroom deals had been made leading up to the balloting that would play out in the result of the next ballot. The 1940 Republican National Convention would find many of the main contenders on the ground and lobbying delegates for their support, as well as shuffling back and forth amongst the candidates, making political promises, including, but not limited to, the vice presidential nomination in exchange for their support. The second ballot came soon after the first and found Dewey still in the lead, but dropping to 338 votes, while Taft rose to 203 and Wilkie closed the gap with 171 votes. Again, the prediction of the Dewey camp fell short. Though his managers claimed he would gain 52 votes, he lost 22. A Republican pollster had warned Dewey's managers that they should hold back some votes on the first ballot to ensure that he gained on the second to generate a momentum. As the pollster noted, his suggestion was, quote, met with the most annoying, patronizing air I have encountered in my political life. For Dewey, the air was quickly going out of his campaign. The break between ballots found the candidates and their supporters hard at work. The Taft and Wilkie camps tried to convince Dewey to drop out of the nomination battle to no avail. Thus, when the third ballot came and went, Dewey remained in the lead, but was down 23 votes to 315. Taft, meanwhile, had only gained nine votes, which found him dropping to third place. The Wilkie momentum by this point was in full force, and having gained 88 votes, Wilkie overtook Taft with 259 delegates behind him. Further, the crowd in attendance at the Philadelphia Convention Hall was chanting, We want Wilkie, with increasing fervor. Dewey, finally realizing the danger he was in, made overtures to Senator Vandenberg to seek to adjourn the convention for the evening so that he could regroup. And though Vandenberg was open to the idea, the Wilkie and Taft camps successfully pushed for the fourth ballot to be called. For those of us in the modern day, 2020 as of this recording, it's difficult to imagine the excitement of conventions in that era where the primary system wasn't nearly as developed and the convention, rather than rubber stamping what had already been decided, was in fact the deciding factor in who the party's nominee would be. For the fourth ballot, the campaigns watched with bated breath as each state's delegation was called on to vote. The California delegation passed in the alphabetical roll call, which led to speculation about how they would turn. By the time the call got to Montana, 
the Wilkie camp was concerned. At that point, he was only up 13 votes. The We Want Wilkie chance picked up, however, when New Jersey and New York added 58 votes to his total. Ultimately, the fourth ballot would see Wilkie in first place with 306 votes. Down but not out, Taft had gained 44 new votes and regained the second place spot with 254 votes. Dewey, meanwhile, dropped to third with 250 votes. The rumors started going around the convention hall that Dewey was on his way to concede and throw his support behind Taft. Between the two, if the totals held, Taft could walk away with the nomination. However, Dewey didn't withdraw, and the fifth ballot began. As noted by Peters, there had only been four other times in the history of the Republican Party that the presidential nominee had not been decided by the fourth ballot. But in 1940, the fifth ballot would be needed. Taft and Wilkie would respectively pick up 123 votes to their tally on that ballot. With Wilkie already in the lead, this put him at 429, only 72 votes from securing the nomination. Dewey's dissent, meanwhile, continued. On the fifth ballot, he ended up in fourth place with 57 votes. How the mighty had fallen. At this point, Taft's camp pushed for an adjournment. But it was clear how the tide was turning, and the sixth ballot was called at 12.30 a.m. One by one, the state delegations were called on, and finally, the Virginia delegation put Wilkie over the top by 16 votes. Ohio Governor John Bricker then put forward the motion to make the nomination unanimous, and the convention agreed. With that, Wendell Wilkie, the man who had been a Democrat two years prior and who had never run for political office to that point, became the Republican nominee for president. With that out of the way, Wilkie had to make a choice about who would be his running mate. Though he had already promised the post to Connecticut Governor Raymond Baldwin, who had been an early supporter both before and during the convention, Wilkie was heavily lobbied to choose Senator McNary of Oregon. As had been shown in the Oregon primary, McNary was popular in the West, was well regarded by the isolationists and establishment Republicans, and, quote, had a rough-hewn Will Rogers image, but came unadulterated with any of the gloss of the Eastern establishment. McNary was wary to accept the offer, having strongly opposed Wilkie's nomination and considering, quote, the vice presidency, even under the best of circumstances, as no better than a goddamn spare tire. But the senator finally gave in and easily won the nomination on the first ballot. Now that the Republican ticket was decided, the question became whether President Roosevelt would or wouldn't seek the Democratic nomination for a third time. As contenders on both sides of the aisle had been seeking the office, FDR had been executing his duties of office. Though I will admit, and grains of salt at the ready, it seems that Roosevelt did at some point have a genuine desire to retire after his second term, increasingly he came to believe that he had to run for a third term. When surveying the situation with regards to potential successors, the prospects were bleak. Harry Hopkins was arguably the closest to Roosevelt, but he had suffered from ill health and, as noted by historian Gene Edward Smith, quote, was literally at death's door, hospitalized first at the Mayo Clinic, then at the Naval Hospital in Washington, with an as-yet undiagnosed digestive ailment. FDR himself dismissed Garner's candidacy in a cabinet meeting shortly after the announcement in December by stating in reference to the vice president's reputation for heavy drinking that, quote, I see that the vice president has thrown his bottle, I mean his hat, into the ring. From a personal standpoint, 
As noted by FDR biographer H.W. Brands, there was little to motivate Roosevelt to retire. Sure, he would have a cushy job with Collier's, but he would go from being one of, if not the most pivotal person on the stage in America, to an armchair commentator. Likewise, though it is far beyond the scope of this episode to discuss, for Roosevelt, there were not the strong ties to family that led other presidents to retire from public life in order to enjoy their remaining years with loved ones. Roosevelt had previously and would continue to engage in extramarital affairs, and it is far more likely that his time in his post-presidency would have been spent in the company of women other than his wife. As Brands postulates, and I am inclined to seriously consider myself, without the political connection, what would have kept Franklin and Eleanor together after 1940? For her part, Eleanor urged Franklin to designate a successor, but she noted that, when pushed along those lines, quote, Franklin always smiled and said he thought people had to prepare themselves, that all he could do was give them opportunities and see how they worked out. As 1940 continued on, it is easy to understand how Roosevelt would have wondered that, given the circumstances, no one had proven capable of taking up the mantle that he had borne for so many years. Both for Roosevelt and in the political schema, in June 1940, quote, the third term dialogue shifted. As Senator Elmer Thomas, Democrat from Oklahoma, is noted as saying around that time, quote, If things were normal, I would not favor a third term for President Roosevelt, but I consider 1940 an abnormal year. Increasingly, people in and out of government service were feeling the same way, and a number of them shared the sentiment of Representative Charles Kramer, Democrat from California, who said, quote, A speeding car simply cannot change drivers without losing control. No one in the United States is better informed on world affairs than President Roosevelt or so capably qualified to guide us through this critical period. Whether it be the first, second, third, or fourth term is not as important as competent leadership. The problem remained that Roosevelt still refused to say one way or another if he would accept the nomination for a third term. Thus, Jim Farley, both for his personal benefit as he intended to have his name put in for the nomination and in his role as the chair of the DNC, made a trip to Roosevelt's home at Hyde Park, New York on July 9th to ask him in person about his plans. FDR supposedly told him, quote, Jim, I don't want to run, and I'm going to tell the convention so. However, as they continued to talk, Farley suggested that Roosevelt should make it plain by, quote, issuing a statement saying I would refuse to run if nominated and would not serve if elected. The president responded, quote, Jim, if nominated and elected, I could not in these times refuse to take the inaugural oath, even if I knew I would be dead within 30 days. The next day, in a speech to the graduates of the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, the president made it clear that the situation had changed. On the way to UVA, Roosevelt learned that Italy had declared war on France and had invaded from the southeast. As one would expect of a commencement address, the president turned his attention to the future, but he painted a picture for the graduates and to a larger audience of a growing danger abroad that threatened the future of the world. Quote, Some indeed still hold to the now somewhat obvious delusion that we of the United States can safely permit the United States to become a lone island a lone island in a world dominated by the philosophy of force. Such an island may be the dream of those who still talk and vote as isolationists. 
Such an island represents to me and to the overwhelming majority of Americans today a helpless nightmare of a people without freedom. The nightmare of a people lodged in prison, handcuffed, hungry, and fed through the bars from day to day by the contemptuous, unpitying masters of other continents. On this 10th day of June, 1940, the hand that held the dagger has struck it into the back of its neighbor. On this 10th day of June, 1940, in this university, founded by the first great American teacher of democracy, we send forth our prayers and our hopes to those beyond the seas who are maintaining with magnificent valor their battle for freedom. In our American unity, we will pursue two obvious and simultaneous courses. We will extend to the opponents of force the material resources of this nation. And at the same time, we will harness and speed up the use of those resources in order that we ourselves in the Americas may have equipment and training equal to the task of any emergency and every defense. All roads leading to the accomplishment of these objectives must be kept clear of obstructions. We will not slow down or detour. Signs and signals call for speed. Full speed ahead. In case there were any doubts about his intentions, in the week leading up to the Republican convention, Roosevelt reorganized his cabinet and brought two prominent Republicans into his administration. As Secretary of War, he nominated Henry Stimson, who had served in that post in the Taft administration and had been Secretary of State in Hoover's cabinet. As Secretary of the Navy, he nominated Colonel Frank Knox, who had been a rough rider under Theodore Roosevelt's command in the Spanish-American War and the Republican vice presidential nominee in 1936. The move was quite strategic in terms of highlighting the seriousness of the situation abroad and the need of making the American response a bipartisan effort. Stimson and Knox, wary of their party's turn towards isolationism, were more than ready to get behind Roosevelt. Of their own accord prior to their respective nominations, both had delivered speeches on June 18th on national defense. These appointments were also a very strategic action for someone who is contemplating doing the unthinkable and seeking a third term in office. As noted by historian Gene Edward Smith, quote, The appointment of Knox and Stimson cast a pall over the Republican convention. Roosevelt had not only upstaged the event, but exposed the deep fissure in the GOP over foreign policy. Still, though, there was no definite word that Roosevelt was, in fact, a candidate for the nomination. The weekend before the convention began, the president went on an overnight cruise on the presidential yacht Potomac. During the cruise, he announced, quote, that he had absolutely no plans to attend the convention. At this point in presidential history, it was in the process of becoming, but still not established precedent, that candidates for the nomination be present at the convention, even if they were incumbent presidents. Roosevelt himself had broken precedent in 1932 when, after receiving news of his securing the Democratic nomination, he flew from Albany, New York, to Chicago to speak before the convention. Likewise, Roosevelt had addressed the 1936 convention in Philadelphia, but that had been more of a struggle. As he was making his way to the stage and shaking hands with supporters, quote, the brace on his right leg came open and FDR went down, the pages of his speech spilling into the crowd. Though he had recovered and delivered a well-received speech, one can imagine the anxiety that this had created for Roosevelt. Thus, the decision to not appear at the 1940 convention served two purposes. 
One, it would avoid any potentially embarrassing incidents that might highlight Roosevelt's ill health. Equally as important, though, as historian Doris Kearns Goodwin noted, quote, he knew that he would be stronger in the general election, the less anxious he seemed for a third term. As the Democratic National Convention began, fear was the prevailing mood. Commentators at the time noted that the attendees seemed, quote, strangely subdued, and Goodwin asserts that, quote, the delegates, so lively and expansive only four years before, had become irritable at the president's refusal to declare himself. They were worried about the popularity of the Republican presidential nominee. They were worried about breaking the tradition of the third term, but there was no one else they could trust to steer the Democrats to victory. On the second night of the convention, Senator Alvin Barkley read a statement for Roosevelt that further complicated matters. Roosevelt asserted, quote, that he had no wish to be a candidate again and that all the delegates to this convention are free to vote for any candidate. It was a gamble. If it failed, another candidate would be chosen as the Democratic nominee and possibly lose against Wilkie in the general election. If it succeeded, though. As if on cue, once Barclay finished reading the statement and delegates took their seats once more, quote, from some loudspeaker not in view, a single booming voice shouted, We want Roosevelt. This was soon followed by more voices, and ever more, until the crowd picked up the chant and started declaring that New York wants Roosevelt, California wants Roosevelt. As can be imagined, the initial impetus to the supposed spontaneous outburst of support for the president was in fact on cue, and had been arranged by Chicago Mayor Edward Kelly. On Wednesday morning, word got back to Roosevelt Circle that, despite the show of support the night before, there was still some fence mending to be done. The president still refused to go to the convention. That didn't mean, however, that someone else couldn't go in his stead. First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt was at her getaway at Valk Hill in New York when Secretary of Labor Francis Perkins called her in the evening and told her, quote, Things look black here. The temper of the convention is very ugly. I think you should come. Eleanor was initially reluctant, but after talking it over with Franklin via phone, she agreed. Wednesday evening was set for the presidential nominations to be put forward. Naturally, President Roosevelt's name was entered into the fray, as were those of Vice President Garner, Secretary of State Hull, Postmaster General and DNC Chair Farley, and Senator Millard Tidings of Maryland. There was, however, no contest when it came to the actual balloting. FDR won with a resounding 946 and 13 thirtieths out of 1,100 votes. How in the world one ends up with a 13 thirtieths of a vote is due to numerous half votes in the state delegations. Seriously, six delegations split their votes into fractions. Though Roosevelt had won, there was still, as his supporters at the convention were reporting back, a lack of enthusiasm about the president and, more poignantly, about Roosevelt's choice for his running mate. It was clear that Garner was unacceptable to serve for a third term as VP. He had openly defied Roosevelt in putting himself forward for the nomination, and it was quite certain that, should something happen to FDR in his term, Garner, upon assuming the presidency, would lead the nation in a different direction. Roosevelt needed someone that he could trust to continue his policies as his running mate, and this person needed to be someone who could be spared from his current position in order to assume the vice presidency. Thus, around 3 a.m. on July 18th, Roosevelt informed Chicago Mayor Kelly that Secretary of Agriculture Henry Wallace was his choice to receive the convention's nomination for vice president. As stated earlier, 
When considering Wallace as a possible successor in 1940, Roosevelt had concluded that he didn't have a strong enough base from which to launch a candidacy. A term or two in the vice presidency, though, could give him the visibility needed for a future run. However, despite having Roosevelt's support, Wallace was far from the favorite choice for the second spot on the ticket for many at the convention. Again, from Goodwin, quote, To the party leaders in Chicago, Wallace was a babe in the political woods. He had started life as a Republican and only recently switched to the Democratic Party. Harry Hopkins reported to the president on Thursday morning that at least 10 candidates for the VP spot had more votes than Wallace. Roosevelt was irate and is reported to have responded, quote, Well, they will go for Wallace or I won't run, and you can jolly well tell them so. Thankfully for Roosevelt, Wallace, and the convention, the president's not-so-secret weapon was en route. Early in the evening, Jim Farley escorted First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt into the convention hall, and she took her seat with Ilo Wallace to await her time to address the crowd. From there, she witnessed the nominating speeches and the enthusiasm for one candidate after another until Henry Wallace's name was thrown into the ring. As Secretary Perkins recalled later, quote, I shall never forget Henry Wallace's face as he sat there. It was a dreadful thing to go through. Terrible. There were catcalls, hisses, all the more vulgar and outward manifestations of dislike and disappointment. I never lived through anything worse. He was listening, but his eyes were way off. The storm was rolling over him, and he had to take it. This was certainly nothing he had anticipated. The first lady took Ilo's hand during the demonstration, and Wallace's wife, quote, turned to Eleanor and said in understated fashion, I don't know why they don't seem to like Henry. Meanwhile, FDR was listening to the radio reports of the proceedings and drafted up a statement and handed it over to one of his aides to polish up. The statement, which declared that, quote, until the Democratic Party makes clear its overwhelming stand in favor of liberalism and shakes off all the shackles of control by conservatism and reaction, it will not continue its march of victory. Also included Roosevelt's announcement that he would not accept the party's nomination. His aides, upon reading the statement, descended into a passionate back and forth about what to do, with some arguing that they should tear up the statement immediately, while others felt it might be for the best. Before a decision was reached, the nominating speeches wrapped up in Chicago at around 10.30 p.m., and Eleanor Roosevelt rose from her seat to head to the stage. Once Eleanor appeared at the rostrum, the convention fell into silence. Goodwin described it as, quote, perhaps the most heartfelt expression of respect and admiration the entire week. After a few cordial words of thanks, the First Lady shifted to the heart of her message. Quote, This is no ordinary time. No time for weighing anything except what we can best do for the country as a whole. She reminded those gathered that, quote, No man who is a candidate or who is president can carry the situation alone. This is only carried by a united people who love their country and who will live for it to the fullest of their ability, with the highest ideals, with a determination that their party shall be absolutely devoted to the good of the nation as a whole. In essence, her message was that if you're going to put the president forward again as the party's leader, then you have to let him lead and give him what he says he needs to govern. The balloting for vice president began shortly after Eleanor left the stage. It only took one ballot for Henry Wallace to secure a majority of the votes and become the second half of the Democratic ticket for 1940. Though Wallace was convinced that it probably wasn't wise to deliver an acceptance speech, 
Roosevelt made use of a medium he had put to good effect over the years and delivered his acceptance speech via radio. He began by asserting, quote, It is with a very full heart that I speak tonight. I must confess that I do so with mixed feelings, because I find myself, as almost everyone does sooner or later in his lifetime, in a conflict between deep personal desire for retirement on the one hand and that quiet, invisible thing called conscience on the other. After explaining that he had fully intended to leave office after two terms, the president then outlined how the course of events led him to question, quote, whether I have the right, as commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy, to call on men and women to serve their country or to train themselves to serve, and, at the same time, decline to serve my country in my own personal capacity, if I am called upon to do so by the people of my country. The fight was on, and President Roosevelt was in it to win it. With two internationalists as their respective parties' nominees, the question became whether Wilkie would either tone down his rhetoric against Nazi Germany or possibly shift his position to appeal to the isolationist faction of the Republican Party. Meanwhile, the rifts in the Democratic Party weren't fully healed. The day after the Democratic National Convention ended, Senator Edward Walsh, Democrat from Nebraska, announced his endorsement of Wilkie for president. Around the same time, Senator Rush Holt, Democrat from West Virginia, urged that the Senate act on his proposed bill to oppose the idea of a third presidential term. Simultaneously, after the conventions were over, Democrats and Republicans, supporters of Roosevelt and Wilkie, would find themselves thrown together in efforts to garner support for American intervention in Europe, and Roosevelt would use this to his advantage. At one of his press conferences, the president had on display on his desk an ad with the headline, Stop Hitler Now, which had run in major newspapers across the nation. One of the reporters asked for Roosevelt's comment on the ad, to which he asserted that, quote, it's a great piece of work, certainly educational for the country. While it is beyond the scope of this episode to discuss in great detail, President Roosevelt would use groups that were led in part by prominent Wilkie supporters to his advantage in garnering support both in Congress and in the general public for measures that he put forward in the latter half of 1940 to support the Allies. While Roosevelt was pushing measures through Congress, the Republican nominee officially began his campaign on August 17th when Wilkie, fresh from a stay in Colorado Springs where he had been resting and strategizing, delivered his acceptance speech at his hometown, Elwood, Indiana. The speech, however, went over like a lead balloon. As described by Peters, quote, The crowd was ready for an old-fashioned, give-em-hell political stemwinder, but Wilkie was clearly uncomfortable. The hot sun was shining directly on him, sweat was dripping from his forehead, and his speech had been written not for a crowd, but for the ages best suited to quiet perusal in the library. It would have been bad enough if just the crowd present heard him proclaim himself to be, quote, a liberal Democrat, but the speech was broadcast on the radio across the nation. Stone gives Wilkie some grace by asserting that, quote, no speech could have satisfied the audience that was tuning in, but then goes on to say that, quote, when Wilkie had finished, his adherents felt let down, as though they had somehow been deceived, betrayed. It seems that Wendell Wilkie's bid for the presidency had died a borning. Despite the potential political gain for Wilkie to come out swinging and adopt an oppositional stance to Roosevelt and his internationalist viewpoint, Wilkie refused to say or do anything opposed to his principles. He could not sell policies that he felt were detrimental to the nation's future, even if that meant that he by and large agreed with the policies being pursued by his opponent. 
When FDR prepared to announce his Destroyers for Bases deal to aid Great Britain in early September, he sent out feelers to Wilkie through some of the groups that had organized to oppose Nazi aggression to see whether the Republican candidate would come out in opposition to the deal. When word got back that Wilkie was in support, Roosevelt made the deal known and Wilkie publicly stated that he felt the, quote, public will undoubtedly approve of it. Wilkie also aided Roosevelt behind the scenes in persuading prominent Republicans, including House Minority Leader Joe Martin, to support the draft bill to further prepare the nation should war come. The idea of a draft has never been popular given the implications on the public, but for both of the principal presidential candidates to support the bill and work together to get it passed is something that is unimaginable in the modern era, though I think I speak for many when I say that such bipartisan cooperation for the public good over personal political gain would be quite welcome. Though there was much cooperation, neither the candidates nor the public forgot that there was an election on. And on September 12th, Wilkie hit the campaign trail. His train, which was dubbed the Wilkie Special, set out from Rushville, Indiana, first for Coffeyville, Kansas, where he had taught at the local high school in his earlier days, then crisscrossed the nation for seven weeks. Wilkie would make 560 stops to deliver speeches and would cover, quote, 18,789 miles through 31 states. As one can imagine, delivering so many speeches strained Wilkie's vocal cords, and he was, quote, in need of constant treatment by a specialist. Joseph Barnes of the New York Herald Tribune described the train as, quote, a migrating hotel, camp, headquarters, traveling carnival, and smoke-filled politicians hangout in one. Newspapermen called it the squirrel cage. Peters notes that, quote, the chaos of the campaign train was exasperated by the continuing warfare between the professional politicians and Wilkie's amateurs. Wilkie trailed in the polls as Election Day drew closer, and at one point, Roosevelt had a 12-point lead. Despite his political naivete, Wilkie did manage to get some important endorsements, including the president of the United Mine Workers and the CIO, as well as boxing great Joe Lewis. The Republicans attempted to use the third-term issue to their advantage, and Wilkie himself, in a speech in Montana, quipped that, quote, If you elect him, i.e. Roosevelt, for a third term, there will be no limit to the imagination of what he has a mandate to do. Wilkie even gave a bit on the issue of the situation in Europe and remarked that, quote, we do not want to send our boys over there again, and we do not intend to send them over there again. And if you elect me president, they won't be sent. The president, meanwhile, had, quote, insisted on limiting his trips to war plants and shipyards. Though one may, at a glance, think that Roosevelt was out of step with the public mood, especially considering that his double-digit lead dropped to a six-point lead at the end of November, as Goodwin notes, quote, one look at the crowded schedule the president kept that autumn suggests that under the guise of non-political inspection trips, the old politician was alive and well. Indeed, as always, FDR understood the importance of timing. Thus, in the last couple of weeks of the campaign, the president delivered five campaign speeches. Whereas Wilkie had done the media blitz for months and had made some gaffes along the way, the Roosevelt campaign was careful about smoothing out any potential embarrassments that happened to occur and the press coverage of five speeches was much easier to manage than that of the 560 stops of the Wilkie special. In the kickoff speech in Philadelphia on October 23rd, Roosevelt quipped about hitting the campaign trail that, quote, I will not pretend that I find this an unpleasant duty. I'm an old campaigner, and I love a good fight. 
Reporters along the way noted that, quote, the way of the man with his crowds, very great and responsive, roused them as much as anything, he said. In every toss of his head, in every life of a jutting chin, in every crackling, twitting jibe at his opponents, in every gesture and fillip of his speaking, he was as cocky a candidate as one could imagine. Roosevelt delivered at his campaign appearances, but the one that is most remembered is the one on October 30th at Boston Garden. The day prior, Roosevelt and Secretary of War Henry Stimson had participated in the first ever drawing of draft numbers in peacetime. His advisors had begged him to put off the event until after the election, but the president felt it important to continue as planned. And Stimson noted in his diary afterwards, quote, that the solemn nature of the historic ceremony served to change the event into a great asset in his favor. Still, on the way to Boston, Roosevelt was bombarded by messages from anxious Democrats begging him to give some assurance that this was just a preparedness measure and that the young men being drafted would not have to fight in the war raging across the ocean. His speech began with the ordinary glad tidings and familiars, but he soon launched into what his administration had done to help to prepare for the national defense should the nation ever be threatened. He reminded the crowd that, quote, when the dangers to all forms of democracy throughout the world have been obvious, the Republican team in the Congress has been acting only as a party team. Time after time, Republican leadership refused to see that what this country needs is an all-American team. About halfway through, he turned his speech to a more personal message with regards to the draft, speaking from a distance into the households of America as he had many times since 1933. The president remarked that, quote, I can give assurance to the mothers and fathers of America that each and every one of their boys in training will be well-housed and well-fed. Throughout that year of training, there will be constant promotion of their health and their well-being. And while I'm talking to you, mothers and fathers, I give you one more assurance. I've said this before, but I shall say it again and again and again. Your boys are not going to be sent into any foreign wars. While the bitter irony isn't lost on those of us familiar with how the story goes from there, to the people of the time, it was the reassurance they needed, and the timing was perfect. Nearly a week later, when the election was held on November 5, 1940, Roosevelt won re-election to an unprecedented third term with 54.7% of the vote to Wilkie's 44.8%. The margin of victory was down from what FDR had achieved against Alf Landon four years prior in both the popular vote and the electoral vote, which Roosevelt also won handily over Wilkie to the tune of 449 to 82. Wilkie had held on to Maine and Vermont, the only two states that Landon had won in 1936, and picked up Colorado, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Michigan, Nebraska, North Dakota, and South Dakota. It may not have been quite as overwhelming of a victory, but it was still an astonishing victory in many ways. As Roosevelt told well-wishers, who had gathered at his home at Hyde Park around midnight on election night, quote, It looks all right. We, of course, face difficult days in this country, but I think you will find me in the future just the same Franklin Roosevelt you have known a great many years. My heart has always been here. It always will be. After the election, Roosevelt and Wilkie worked together again to secure the Lend-Lease Bill. When the two met at the White House to coordinate efforts, as described by Peters, quote, Roosevelt welcomed him, i.e. Wilkie, warmly. 
and the two men exchanged jokes. Great bursts of laughter could be heard coming through the closed doors, said Jimmy Roosevelt. Four years later, Wilkie would try again for the Republican nomination, but since 1940, he had only further alienated himself from Republican leaders who were coming to realize, quote, that Wilkie was a liberal on domestic issues, actually being to the left of FDR. He competed in the Republican presidential primary in Wisconsin on April 5, 1944, but he came in a dismal fourth place, only earning just over 6,400 votes compared to Douglas MacArthur's whopping 102,421 votes. The second-place vote-getter in Wisconsin, Thomas Dewey, with just over 21,000 votes, would end up becoming the Republican nominee that year, and Wilkie bowed out of the race after Wisconsin to ease the way. Any future political hopes for Wilkie were dashed when he suffered a series of heart attacks starting in September and ultimately passed away on October 7th. As for Franklin Roosevelt, well, we'll have to wait to discuss his ultimate fate at a future date. I think you've likely heard enough to understand my reasoning for why the 1940 election is worthy of the title of unprecedented. I do have one more election that I'd like to cover, so I hope you'll join me for the next special episode. Until then, I'd like to again thank Bree, Fry, Carrie, and Alex for providing the intro quotes for this episode. I'd also like to thank a recent reviewer from Podbean. Tchaikovsky223 said, quote, Came from Totalis Rankium, really enjoyed hearing you on their show. Looking forward to binging all of your stuff now. Thank you so much. Glad to have you on board this journey, and I hope you're enjoying it thus far. I also discovered when I got an alert about Tchaikovsky's comment that there was one from Atris Marcellus from a while back who said that they had heard of this podcast through Totalis Rankium and was giving presidencies a listen. My apologies for the delay in acknowledgement, as it's only been recently that I've gotten notifications from Podbean, but I hope you're still listening and enjoying the episodes thus far. There is much more to come, both in our regular narrative series and in terms of special episodes. To wrap up this episode, though, for sources used for this episode, you can go to the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to send an email to presidenciespodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. You can also connect with me on social media if you're not already. I can be found on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. Again, all one word. Thanks to all of you for listening. And until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.